Episode 29. The first hot days of summer. Trailer truck-sized boats drive past my AC-less window. Steamy breezes. Beach season in our eye. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This episode, we let the sunshine in on this first week of summer, so let's try and make a head summer salad. And for our drink, a hard iced tea. Not to mention the continued reading of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. These heavenly bodies align to create the planetary parade that is the Patuxent General, without whom we would merely be a shooting star out on our own. So thank you! There is a link in the show notes if you wish to join our galactic allies. We would love to have you, and you will receive extra content of many kinds. But for right now, let's talk about hard iced tea. In 1987, I was lucky enough to stay in a duplex overlooking the cove in Patuxet. Due to strange circumstances, I had the place to myself and the family dog for most of my stay there. My bedroom overlooked the cove, and I could see all the way to the Newport Bridge. On a clear night, the lights were bright on the horizon. I would open the windows to let in the salted breeze, listen to local jazz stations, and sip iced teas. Uh, This would have been perfect, but at night, things would happen that would keep the dog and I up for hours. Not every night, but often. Across the hall from my bedroom was a door to the attic bedroom. It looked like a broom closet door, but on the other side were steep, short steps that went to the attic. Nothing was up there. The door always remained closed. Sometime in the first week there, I noticed my sweet-natured canine pal had her hackles up and was staring at the door. I tried to reassure her, but she wouldn't calm down or move from the spot. I thought perhaps a critter had gotten into the upstairs room, so, armed with a flashlight, I decided to investigate. I slowly climbed the stairs, turning on the overhead lights along the way. I looked into the corners in the empty room upstairs for any gap that an animal could get through. Nothing. It was totally empty, with a fine coating of dust on the floor that showed only my footprints, and the pooch wouldn't follow. So downstairs I went, firmly closing the door behind me. After I had settled into a blissful nighttime view and was dozing, my normally extremely relaxed pal was standing in my door jam. Living alone, I had left it open, facing out and barking like she was going to tear something to pieces, but she wouldn't budge from the door jam. But worse, she was looking at the door to the attic. I grabbed the flashlight and once again went upstairs to find nothing. This time I locked the door with a hook. I took my trusty pal back into my room and shut the door. We settled in and were good and relaxed when we both heard it. We both started at the noise. It was the sound of heavy footfalls coming down the stairs and the door shaking on its hook. My sweet dog whined. I put a chair against my bedroom door. A stillness took over the night until dawn, which I was still up for. I found no evidence that anything had happened. This occurred several more times in the time I stayed there, but I never slept with the door open again. When I remember that place, I try to think of sitting in my room, listening to jazz with a dog and sipping hard iced tea.
For this drink, you will need two and a half ounces of whiskey of your choice, three ounces of lemonade of your choice, one ounce of red rose tea, extra potent, a tall glass, a lemon slice for garnish, a mixer, and ice. Lots of it. This is super quick because when it's hot, you want it right now. So, fill both the glass and the mixer with ice, then add the whiskey, the tea cooled to room temperature, and the lemonade. In episode 24, we shared our favorite recipe for lemonade that is perfect in this drink, but any will do. Give it a righteous shake and fill the glass. A slice of lemon on the side makes it special and chill from the steamy day and enjoy. During the 1980s, my mom had a no-fail crowd-pleasing salad for a hot day. She took it to so many barbecues, always a hit. And if you omit the bacon and substitute tofu in a finely chopped mushroom, you will get the same feeling just in a vegan way. Uh, this is a long list of ingredients, so hang in there. For this recipe, you will need one pound spinach, stemmed and torn into bite-sized pieces, one red onion, sliced thin, one can water chestnuts, five slices crispy bacon, a half a tablespoon Worcestershire sauce, a half a tablespoon soy sauce, two tablespoons balsamic vinegar, two tablespoons honey, and a large bowl to serve the salad. What she did was to make the dressing in the bowl, then add the rest. So in goes the honey, balsamic, soy sauce, and Worcestershire sauce. Give it a really good whisk until it's incorporated. And then add the drained water chestnuts, red onion, crumbled bacon, and spinach. Then very gently toss. As a make-ahead, the spinach, bacon, onions, and dressing can be made separately and combined at the last minute for a bit of table drama. The crunch of the water chestnuts and bacon complement the spinach with just a hint of sweet. To balance the salt, it's just what the doctor ordered. So, try this yourself and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Now for our continuing House in the Corner series, a reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 5, Section 2. Dr. Willette fully admits that for a moment the memory of the old Kerwin legends kept him from climbing down alone into that malodorous gulf. He could not help thinking of what Luke Fenner had reported on that monstrous night. Then duty asserted itself, and he made the plunge, carrying a great valise for the removal of whatever papers might prove of supreme importance. Slowly, as befitted one of his years, he descended the ladder and reached the slimy steps below. This was ancient masonry, his torch told him, and upon the dripping walls he saw the unwholesome moss of centuries. Down, down ran the steps, not spirally, but in three abrupt turns. 
and with such narrowness that two men could have passed only with difficulty. He had counted to about thirty when a sound reached him very faintly, and after that he did not feel disposed to count any more. It was a godless sound, one of those low-keyed, insidious outrages of nature which are not meant to be. To call it a dull wail, a doom-dragged whine, or a hopeless howl of chorused anguish, and stricken flesh without mind, would be to miss its most quintessential loathsomeness and soul-sickening overtones. Was it for this that Ward had seemed to listen on that day he was removed? It was the most shocking thing that Willette had ever heard, and it continued from no determinant point as the doctor reached the bottom of the steps and cast his torchlight around the lofty corridor walls surmounted by cyclopean vaulting and pierced by numberless black archways. The hall in which he stood was perhaps fourteen feet high to the middle of the vaulting and ten or twelve feet broad. Its pavement was of large chipped flagstones, and its walls and roof were of dressed masonry. Its length he could not imagine, for it stretched ahead indefinitely into the blackness. Of the archways, some had doors of the old six-paneled colonial type, whilst others had none. Overcoming the dread induced by the smell and howling, Willette began to explore these archways one by one, finding beyond them rooms with groined stone ceilings, each of medium size and a apparently of bizarre uses. Most of them had fireplaces, the upper courses of whose chimneys would have formed an interesting study in engineering. Never before or since had he seen such instruments or suggestions of instruments as here, loomed up at every hand through the burying dust and cobwebs of a century and a half, in many cases evidently shattered as if by ancient raiders, for many of the chambers seemed wholly untrodden by modern feet and must have represented the earliest and most obsolete phases of Joseph Kerwin's experimentation. Finally, there came a room of obvious modernity, or at least recent occupancy. There were oil heaters, bookshelves and tables, chairs and cabinets, and a desk piled high with papers of varying antiquity and contemporariousness. Candlesticks and oil lamps stood about in several places, and finding a match handy, Willette lighted such as were ready for use. In the fuller gleam, it appeared that this apartment was nothing less than the latest study or library of Charles Ward. Of the books, the doctor had seen many before, and a good part of the furniture had plainly come from the Prospect Street mansion. Here and there was a piece well known to Willette, and a sense of familiarity became so great that he half forgot the noisomeness and the wailing, both of which were plainer here than they had been at the foot of the steps. His first duty, as planned long ahead, was to find and seize any papers that might seem of vital importance, especially those portentous documents found by Charles so long ago behind the picture at Only Court. As he searched, he perceived how stupendous a task the final unraveling would be, for file on file was stuffed with papers in curious hands and bearing curious designs, so that months or even years might be needed for a thorough deciphering and editing. Once, he found large packets of letters with Prague and raucous postmarks, and in writing clearly recognizably, Orns and Hutchinsons, all of which he took with him as part of the bundle to be removed in his valise. At last, in a locked mahogany cabinet once gracing the ward home, Willette found a batch of old Kerwin papers. 
Recognizing them from the reluctant glimpse Charles had granted him so many years ago, the youth had evidently kept them together very much as they had been when he first found them, since all the titles recalled by the workmen were present, except the papers addressed to Orne and Hutchinson, and the cipher with its key. Willette placed the entire lot in his valise and continued his examination of the files. Since young Ward's immediate condition was the greatest matter at stake, the closest searching was done amongst the most obvious recent matter. And in this abundance of contemporary manuscript, one very baffling oddity was noted. The oddity was the slight amount in Charles' normal writing, which indeed included nothing more recent than two months before. On the other hand, there were literally reams of symbols and formulae, historical notes and philosophical comment, in a crabbed penmanship absolutely identical with the ancient script of Joseph Kerwin, though of undeniably modern dating. Plainly, a part of the latter-day program had been a sedulous imitation of the old wizard's writing, which Charles seemed to have carried to a marvelous state of perfection. Of any third hand which might have been Allen's, there was not a trace. If he had indeed come to be the leader, he must have forced young Ward to act as his secretary. In this new material, one mystic formula, or rather pair of formula, reoccurred so often that Willette had it by heart before he had half finished his quest. It consisted of two parallel columns, the left-hand one surmounted by the archaic symbol called Dragon's Head and used in almanacs to indicate the ascending node, and the right-hand one headed by the corresponding sign of Dragon's Tail or Descending Node. The appearance of the whole was something like this, and almost unconsciously the doctor realized that the second half was no more than the first written symbolically backward, with the exception of the final monosyllables of the old name Yogg-Saloth, which he had come to recognize under various spellings from other things he had seen in connection with this horrible matter. The formulae were as follows, exactly so, as Willette is abundantly able to testify, and the first one struck an odd note of uncomfortable latent memory in his brain, which he recognized later when reviewing the events of the horrible Good Friday of the previous year. So haunting were these formulae, and so frequently did he come upon them, that before the doctor knew it, he was repeating them under his breath. Eventually, however, he felt he had secured all the papers he could digest to advantage for the present, hence resolved to examine no more till he could bring back the skeptical alienist and moss for an ampler and more systematic raid. He still had to find the hidden laboratory, so leaving his valise in the lighted room, he emerged into the black, noisome corridor, whose vaulting echoed ceaselessly with that dull and hideous whine. The next few rooms he tried were all abandoned, and filled only with crumbling boxes and ominous-looking leaden coffins. What impressed him deeply with the magnitude of Joseph Kerwin's original operations. He thought of the seamen who had disappeared, of the graves that had been violated in every part of the world, and of what the final waiting party must have seen, and then he decided it was better not to think any more. Once a great stone staircase mounted at his right, and he deduced that this must have reached one of the Kerwin outbuildings, perhaps the famous stone edifice with the high, slit-like windows, provided the steps he had descended had led from the steep-roofed farmhouse. Suddenly, the walls seemed to fall away ahead, and the stench in the wailing grew stronger. Willett saw he had come across a vast open space, so great that his torchlight could not carry across it, and as he advanced he encountered occasional stout 
pillars supporting the arches of the roof. After a time, you reach the circle of pillars grouped like a monoliths of Stonehenge, with a large carved altar at the base of three steps in the center. And so curious were the carvings on that altar that he approached them to study them with his electric light. But when he saw what they were, he shrank away, shuddering, and did not stop to investigate the dark stains which discolored the upper surface that had spread down the sides in occasional thin lines. Instead, he found the distant wall and traced it as it swept around in a gigantic circle perforated by occasional black doorways and indented by a myriad of shadow cells with iron gratings and wrist and ankle bonds on chains fashioned to the stone of the concave rear masonry. These cells were empty, but the horrible odor and dismal moaning continued, more insistent than ever, and seemingly varied at times by a sort of slippery thumping. Once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us here at the PG. There are so many ways for you to listen now on our webpage, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube with a sunrise. You could even visit our pop-up general store in person. If you have any questions, ghost stories, or would like to invite us to your venue, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. But for right now, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>